I was in a prayer meeting and this text came to mind and it just seemed to lodge as this, this is the text. And uh, so here is where we are tonight. We trust in the will of the Lord for men and women and boys and girls as we've assembled here this evening. Proverbs 25, it's verse 25 that I wish to read with you. And then we'll pray over the scriptures and endeavor to give consideration to the text. Proverbs 25, verse 25. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Amen. May the Lord illuminate this text to us. It is his living word. May it be alive in our hearts tonight. May we receive it by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help. We bless thee that thy word is a living word. We've been encouraged already as we've been singing together. As the deer pants after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after God, said the psalmist. We pray that thou wilt bless every one of us with such a thirst for thee. Think of the words of what we just sang. And we can't help but think of Dr. Allison when we sing that hymn. We think of a man that lived and prayed for revival longed for and expressed in his own soul that thirst for God to manifest his power. Lord, in memory of such, we endeavor to carry on and have that soul thirst for God. Bless us then. Give ears to hear. Give help to this preacher. Bless the Spirit of God. Take what thou hast been the author of and illuminate every heart. And revive all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. It's very hard for us to imagine what it was like back in those days to hear good news from a far country. We don't really understand what it's like to not hear from people for months and maybe even years in terms of what's happening and what is going on. These days of modern technology and the communication that we have, we hardly know what it's like to be away from someone and not hear from them for an extended period of time. So, so what, the, what the writer of the Proverbs, what Solomon is recording here, in the context of when he's recording it, is an experience that we don't really understand. It's almost foreign to us. And yes, you may have loved ones that you don't see as often as you would like, I know all about that. I have my family on the other side of the world, almost. And uh, with current restrictions, we, we wonder whether we'll ever see them again in person. We'll see how that all unfolds. But so it is. So this experience of not seeing one another uh, for extended periods, and yet we still FaceTime. We still are able to talk and email and communicate in other ways. And even modern travel has made the world so small that really the, the, the sense of the kind of experience undergirding this text is, is alien to us, absolutely foreign. There was a time when you would rarely hear from those who leave your immediate geographic location. You just would never hear from them. We read the stories of missionaries and they're being sent off in ships and the entire congregation and the entire Christian community coming along and waving their handkerchiefs, saying goodbye, wondering whether they would ever be seen in person again. 
That's not something we anticipate in our day. Our world has changed greatly, but but though the context and our experience is different than the time of the writing of this proverb, we still like to hear good news from a far country. I have family in the UK. I have friends in my time ministering in Australia. I have friends in Canada, and I enjoy hearing from them of whatever good news may be coming forth from what's happening in the family, within the churches, hearing of of young people that are getting married when you remember them and they were just sitting there in the pew just like some of the young ones here and it seems so far advanced and then you look and you get pictures or hear news that they got married and you can hardly believe they're at that age and you're thankful that they're going on with the Lord and they're marrying in the Lord and that's encouraging to see and there's news of God's blessing upon ministries and God raising up preachers across the world, and all of this thrills our hearts. Hear news of men being called into pulpits, and that satisfies the soul. And you hear then of even those that you may have prayed for years ago coming to faith in Christ. That is good news from a far country. It encourages us. It encourages us. So I want to look at this text with you. And I don't intend to be all that long, but certainly I trust the Lord will help me to make the point of what is in my heart as I look at this text with you tonight. You you might, if you want to title it, just simply Good News from a Far Country, but I want us to not miss the point here. And note with me, first of all, an undeserved mercy. An undeserved mercy. The text speaks of good news. That's really the point. The cold waters to a thirsty soul is like unto good news from a far country. And it struck me for the first time as I was musing over this text in the time of prayer, as the text was mentioned in prayer, and I'm praying along with this brother, and he mentions this text, and I start pondering over it and thinking, in light of man's rebellion against God, isn't it a remarkable revelation to have put before us that there is even such a thing as good news? There shouldn't be good news. Light of Adam's rebellion, his sin, his cosmic treason, as some like to put it, and the subsequent rebellion of all of his posterity, you and I included. Why should we expect good news? There should be no expectation of good news. There should be no good news, no experience of good news. God should burn up the world. God should damn those that sin. God should cut them off forever. There shouldn't even be in the material experience of our lives in this world anything remotely coming close to the experience of good news. We don't deserve it. And so, as I say, I see here an undeserved mercy. An undeserved mercy. That the writer of the Proverbs can say, there is such an experience as good news. Glad tidings from faraway places. I think that encouraging even to begin with. If we don't see it, it is because we are blind to the magnitude of God's holiness and our sin in light of that. We haven't taken time to just step back and think of it. The holiness of God. The holiness of God. And our sin that ought to cut us off forever without remedy. We shouldn't expect at all 
good news. But it's here. It is here. There is good news. And it's an encouragement. Romans 3 verse 8 tells us our damnation is just. That should be what we recognize as our experience or ought to be our experience. But there is there's grace here. Indeed, there is, we might say, common grace here, just in the experience of good news from a far country, glad tidings coming to us. When we hear in, in that way I've already expressed it, hearing about things that are happening in other parts of the world, in other places where we do not live, what God is doing, how God is blessing, how God is leading. God mercifully made a covenant with Noah that he would never destroy the world with water again. And so he blesses us with fruitful seasons. And so when the sun rises each morning, when our bodies tell us that we're alive, when we have a means to provide for our families, when there is a place to live, when our wives are call out, just even our wives calling out, dinner's ready. That's good news. All of this is good news that we do not deserve. We don't deserve any of it in light of our sin. And so the very fact that I can read in this text a human experience such as good news from a far country, I'm reading something that is utterly undeserved. I don't deserve any of this at all. And I ought to be then amazed. I'm not only amazed, it plants a seed of optimism. Now here we're living in a world where there's such a thing as good news. Yes, we can take it and we will get to that in light of the gospel, absolutely. But even before we get that, he, that he sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. That this God of ours doesn't burn us up within moments of our entrance into this world or our first actual sin of rebellion against him. Yes, the apostles were right to declare in Acts fourteen seventeen, he did good. And gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. Children, be thankful. Be very thankful every day when there's breakfast on the table, when there's food to eat, when there's all the bounty that is provided before you and set in front of you. Be thankful. God is being good. He did good to give us these things. We don't deserve it. Psalm 145 verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. What is amazing about such a text like that is that we don't deserve it. That is being stated, the Lord is good to all. Yes, when we look at Him, certainly He is good. But seeing that goodness expressed in ways we do not deserve... We ought to fall down and worship that his tender mercies are over all his works. But secondly, not only do we have here an undeserved mercy, but we have an understood condition, an understood condition. Despite being surrounded by evidences of good news, it is clear that the experience of man is to anticipate, at least certain men will anticipate, that there's more good to come. Think of the man that the text here may kind of depict. There's a man living. He is existing. He is going about his business. He has, however, according to the text, a certain anticipation that there will be good news. 
Why do I see that in the text? Well, because he is described as someone who is thirsty. As cold waters to a thirsty soul. Here's someone that is craving for it. Now, you may not always recognize the extent to which he's craving it. But when that news comes, when that experience happens to him, when it comes to his soul, it's quenching his thirst. He recognizes that thirst within his being. And so there's a couple of things I want us to note here as we consider then the condition that we find in this text. First, man ought to experience thirst. Man ought to experience thirst. Thirst for good things is a good thing. God would have us possess a thirst for that which is good. Now we may abuse our appetites. We may abuse our thirst. We may thirst for that which is wrong. We may try the broken cisterns and recognize far too late in life that the waters have failed. But we ought to have a thirst. And God expects it. And we see it expressed often in the Psalms. I'll read some of those verses too. We've already referred to it. It was sang, it was sung. It was not by my selection. Psalm 42 verse 2. My soul thirsteth for God. For the living God. Here's his thirst expressed. Also in Psalm 63. The opening verses. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Then again in Psalm 143 verse 6 I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. The experience of thirst then is a right one if it is directed in the right way. If the appetite is right. These these expressions in the Psalms are are put there by the Spirit of God to reflect how our souls should feel. That we should have a sense of longing. A sense of emptiness that can only be satisfied by God. And that's the common denominator in these expressions in the Psalms. They're looking for God. They're not longing for some of the material things in life, though they may have their place. The common denominator here is a thirst for God. And that is an exceedingly good thing. Let me ask you, do you feel it? Do you feel a thirst for God? What I want to do, however, is issue a warning. That such a thirst is not a given. It is not a given. It is not a given that the man who hears news will always receive it and feel the quenching of a certain thirst within his soul. The man, many men, many individuals, they receive good news, but they always color it in a certain way that it's not good. It's not good. It doesn't bring joy to their hearts. It doesn't gladden their souls. I was talking to some brothers recently about this. Again in another prayer meeting. Later that same day. Talking to them about this. You know. When you hear about what God is doing in other parts of the world. 
When you see the church advance in Iran, in Afghanistan, in China, in other parts of Southeast Asia, it is good news. It is good news. And so we can turn on CNN or whatever and look at all the news and it's down, it's bad, it's grim, it's sad, it's mournful, it's depressing. And all of the country's gone to pot and what's the point and what's the use? And yet there's, there's lots of good news if you have an ear for it. If you have an ear for it. And so some believers are hearing the good news and they're saying, yes, Christ is still building his church. And the gates of hell are not, is not prevailing against it. And they see what God is doing, what God is building, what God is doing through the power of his spirit and exalting the name of his son across the nations. And they're glad it's good news to them. But the same news to others is, it's nothing. They're numb to it. They, they, don't, they don't sense it because, because they're absent. There is an absence of a sense of thirst. It is a medical fact that as you grow older, you lose the capacity gradually to feel thirst. A fact. It's one of the things you have to watch out for with seniors, the aged. They dehydrate. They don't have the capacity to sense thirst the way they once did. So they have to be encouraged and almost forced to drink to keep themselves hydrated. And And I see such a correlation there between the physical and what far too often is our own spiritual experience. The older a man lives, the longer a church goes on, the more likely they are to fall into a condition in which they lose the sensation of thirst for God. So we ask ourselves, are we there? Have we lost the thirst? Oh, just just pause. Just, just go back in your mind. Some of you can go back. And you have, you have this, this little period in your life that could be, that could be, oh, it wasn't consistent. It wasn't perfect. But you could kind of encapsulate that period of your life with thirst. Had a thirst, a thirst for God. You couldn't understand why other Christians wouldn't be at the prayer meeting. What's wrong with them? Why would they not be at the prayer meeting? You couldn't understand why they wouldn't receive an invitation to evangelize with with ready hearts and hands and run at the opportunity. You, you just couldn't understand. Why would you not? Ah. Uh, but maybe today you understand a little more. The capacity to thirst has faded. You're dehydrated and you don't even know it. And just as it kills the aged, so it kills God's people. Oh, we're saved. 
We're saved. <laughs> well, the thirst isn't there. So God has put it within man, mercifully, an experience of thirst. He ought to thirst, and he ought to thirst for the right thing. He ought to thirst for God. And so, just as certain men will receive this good news from a far country, and it will delight them, and it will quench their thirst, and all their sorrows of life all of a sudden seem to just dissipate because of the good news. The same person receiving the same news. I mean, think of it. Think, think of it, actually. Didn't think of it until there now. Think of the news of the prodigal coming home. The father, oh, how glad he is. He's delighted. He's ready to receive him. He's overjoyed. He's ready to put on a whole celebration. And the elder brother, the elder brother's parched and he doesn't even know it. He has no thirst. No thirst. Just a negative slant on it. Yes, he'll just colour it in his own negative way. Doesn't know how to receive good news. No thirst. So man ought to experience thirst. But also man can be relieved of his thirst. He can't. He can be relieved of it. Only the man that possesses the sensation of thirst wants relief from it. Right, that's the problem with the seniors. Some of you may not know this, but the problem is trying to get them to drink. They don't want to drink. They do not want it. They start refusing it. They're not interested. And this, this is, their carers struggle with this. They struggle trying to, to keep them hydrated. But the man who is thirsty, he won't be relieved until the thirst is quenched. In fact... Get thirsty enough, and the only thing that matters in his life is quenching that thirst. He drops everything. He doesn't continue with his work. He's ready to die of thirst. Everything becomes secondary. Everything's set aside in order that he might find water. So he looks for it. He looks for the quenching of his thirst. And he begins to look. For something that will satisfy and be as cold waters to his soul. So how do we get relieved of our thirst? For those of you who feel it. Even just an inkling of it. <laughs> even just an inkling. Oh please. Child of God. At least have an inkling of it. A little bit of thirst. Just, just something in you. How can you be relieved? Many of our forefathers expressed this thirst as being satisfied by the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And historically, it has been common for sincere believers to pray over Isaiah 44, verse 3. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. They have prayed over that text. That text has been a linchpin. It has been... The central drive of their prayers. The motivation of their hearts. They're getting before God and they're pleading that. And they get to a point where they know, they know that nothing will satisfy them but what it is they crave. Which is a manifestation of God's power. Revival. The salvation of souls. The spread of the glory of God in their community. One such example, of course, comes from the pages 
of the revival in the 20th century in Scotland on the Isle of Lewis. Many of you have heard of it. If you have not, I encourage you, go to Sermon Audio, look for the name Duncan Campbell, and listen to his account of the revival on the Isle of Lewis. And just listen to him rehearse what happened there. He remembers, in remembering rather, what God did on that island of Scotland, he says this, he talks about a certain point of opposition. There was opposition coming their way as they were praying and laboring and preaching and desiring God to work. And there were some pushing back, some within the community, stodgy old Presbyterians that wanted nothing to do with what was going on. And Campbell says the opposition was so successful that only seven from this community came near the meetings in the parish church. At the close of one meeting, the session clerk of this particular congregation in which I was ministering came to me and said, quote, Mr. Campbell, these go not out but by prayer and fasting. So we are meeting tonight in the farmhouse. We are going to spend the night in prayer, end quote. There's a man that's thirsty. He's thirsty. So we met, Campbell says. There were about 30 of us and prayer began. I found it a very hard meeting. I found myself battling and getting nowhere as the hours passed. After midnight, between 12 and 1 o'clock in the morning, I turned to a young man in the meeting and said, I feel led of God to ask you to pray. And that dear man rose to his feet and prayed. And in his prayer he uttered words such as I had never heard in a prayer before. He said, Lord, you made a promise. Are you going to fulfill it? We believe that you are a covenant-keeping God. Will you be true to your covenant? You have said that you would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I do not know how others stand in your presence. I do not know how the ministers stand. But if I know my own heart, I know where I stand, and I tell thee now that I am thirsty. Oh, I am thirsty for a manifestation of the man of thy right hand. And then he said this, Lord, before I sit down, I want to tell you that your honour is at stake. Campbell then notes, Believe it or disbelieve it. And you can verify this if you like. The house shook like a leaf. The dishes rattled on the sideboard. And an elder standing beside me said, Mr. Campbell, an earth tremor. I said, yes. And I pronounced the benediction immediately and walked out to find the community alive with an awareness of God. Men and women were carrying stools and chairs and asking, is there room for us in the church? The revival did not break out because Duncan Campbell was there. No, a thousand times no, but because God found a man whom he could trust a man who dared to believe the promise of God. A man, we could say, 
was thirsty. He was thirsty. Those men were relieved by their thirst or of their thirst. Because God came. Quenched the thirst. They were not content to carry on without the visitation of God. And here is the question. The simple question. Do we have a thirst? Do we? Are we able to be relieved of what we ought to feel in the state of things today, are we able to be relieved by something other than a manifestation of God? Are we satisfied because the bills get paid? Because the church lights are still on? Because we can still run the AC? We have enough to do that. We're satisfied because at least some others gather with us and we sing nice hymns and we have a musician and we're able to carry through the motions and we're satisfied with that. Satisfied. While the entire world goes on, completely oblivious, going to hell, to be damned forever, but we will stand in our holy huddle without any thirst. This has to be the greatest grief of any free Presbyterian. Because we have a legacy. Others do not. They don't. They don't have a legacy. I have met, I don't know how many people who have come in to our churches and the one thing that stands out to them among all the other confessional churches, reformed churches they've gone to, the one thing that stands out is our prayer. The prayer meetings. I just had a conversation the other day. This thing. The prayer. The prayer. Never seen this before. Traveled. Been in all sorts of confessional churches. Never seen prayer before. And I'm thinking to myself. You have no idea. You have no idea. This isn't even scraping the surface. Our forefathers knew something else. That is in a different stratosphere. And yet there's still, there's still something there. There's still something there. And people can sense it. But so we have a legacy. We have a legacy. We have a legacy of our forefathers who actually felt the thirst and acted on it. And they were not content. They were simply not content to go through the motions. So I beg of you. I beg of you, how if you say, yes, preacher, I'm thirsty. I'm not as thirsty as I ought to be, but there's a thirst there. Let me ask you then, how, how then are you going to go about quenching it? Not that you can quench it, but like the thirsty man, he starts seeking for water. He doesn't know where it is. He doesn't know when it's going to come, but he starts looking because his life depends on it. So what are you going to do? You know what our our legacy is? Our legacy is Friday nights in prayer. That's our legacy. Half nights of prayer. 
whole nights of prayer like we read. That, that's the legacy. <laughs> Most of you know it. You know it. But are we doing anything about it? I snapped a few months back. I just snapped. I said, no, we, we need to follow it. I remember, I remember when Dr. Cairns passed away that, and I was trying to give a sort of sense of overview of his life. And I emphasized, I emphasized, of all the great accolades and things that could be said about him and his preaching, it was, the preaching was impactful. Of that there is no denying Well, he taught us something about prayer. And I think that's maybe the greatest lesson we learn from these men. Yet I wonder if we're acting on it. So me snapping the other few months back, I just said, I'm going to get a few men... We're going to meet on Friday nights. We're going to pray. Two Friday nights a month. At least for now. It's been really refreshing. It's been good. It's been good. I don't know how it would go. But it's been good. I think it should be required of everyone in the seminary not to. (laughs) I think it should have to be there. I do. Because we don't pass that on. You might as well go to another seminary. Thirdly, the ultimate fulfillment. This text finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It does. Isn't that the wonder of it? Good news from a far country. Never has there been good news like the incarnation of the Son of God ever. That was good news from a far country. Christ came from a far country. And he came as good news for thirsty souls. And thus the angel declared in Luke 2 verse 10 and following, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. Good news. Same. Good news. Good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. By this news, and I could deviate into all sorts of areas and list the various aspects of the good news of Christ's coming and Christ's work and Christ's ongoing work and Christ's work yet to be done. But man's expectation by the coming of the Messiah is good news. It is good news and it, it actually infinitely expands our, our, what we can expect in terms of good news, doesn't it? That the vilest sinner, not just some sinners, the vilest sinner who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. He expands it so that it doesn't matter how sinful you are. It doesn't matter how many years of rebellion. You can be saved. Infinitely across the nations we can go to sinners. And tell them that Jesus Christ saves Our gracious God has not spared his own son. And having not spared his own son, the question is, having not spared him, will he, will he withhold his spirit? No. 
No, he didn't withhold his son. He'll not withhold his spirit. It's the promise of the Father. Luke 24. The promise of the Father. Therefore, therefore, since he so willingly gave his son, and I, I read from the word of his willingness to give his spirit, and not just that spirit that regenerates, but how that regenerating spirit can then fill and empower and come in extraordinary expressions of God's power in a community. I, I then ask the question, well, is, is it God that's unwilling? Is it? Would it be wrong for me to suggest that the lack of power we enjoy is down to one primary issue, the want of meaningful thirst? I say meaningful thirst, because you can say you're thirsty, but it's not till you see a man dropping everything and running around and looking everywhere and asking everyone, hey, hey, do you know where there's water? Do you know where there's water? I'm about to die. When you see that, you see a man desperate, and you know a man's thirsty. And when the church starts looking like that, history tells us that's when the good news comes. The subsequent good news. Yes, Christ has come. But then the, the, the follow-up good news. That having ascended, he sends his spirit. And then we get in each generation. In the mercy of the Lord, each generation can know. They can know a manifestation of this good news expressed in the sending of the spirit of God. In a remarkable way. They can. We all want good news when it comes to those thirsty for it. I feel my parchedness a little bit. But I also feel that I, I go through seasons where I know I have sensed my thirst far more profoundly. That means I'm getting old. Doesn't it? I'm getting old. I'm starting not to sense the ability, the capacity to be thirsty when the body's needing water is beginning to diminish. And if nothing else is cause for repentance, that indeed is. Act on this, beloved. Act on it. Even in your homes. Even in your homes. Have a little season of prayer. You pray for God. Lord, come to our little church. Come. We're thirsty. And Lord, write his word in our hearts.